Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 14th, 2021. It is also Bastille Day, and it is also my son's 11th birthday. He's not listening to this because he's he's in camp in Wisconsin and wouldn't be listening to this anyway. So, <laughs> because he has better things to do at this time, like play Minecraft and eat waffles. But he, he is not doing either because he's in camp in Wisconsin. Um, and uh, Christine Rosen is out today, so with us. Uh, one of our favorite uh, columnists and uh, frequent podcast guests, James B. Meggs, our tech commentary columnist. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to be here again. Uh, and of course, with me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald, who's a little under the weather. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So you may hear him. You may hear him a little under the weathery. Wow. And uh, and associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, so. Uh, Jim, the Delta variant, which we I, look, I called it the Delta variant without saying the highly contagious Delta variant. <laughs> um, now I've just said Let's it. Let's restart. I said it. Okay, uh, <laughs> is highly contagious, and we are seeing this surge in cases nationally. We're now up. I think it's like ninety percent or something from two weeks ago, according to these numbers. Um, and for the first day, if you use the New York Times tracker, for the first day. Uh, the death toll has a you know has taken a worry a worrisome trend upward that it was it was really in the high 100s or the low 200s and we're now up in the mid 300s again as a daily toll um, and all of the deaths and when I say all the deaths I mean 99.5 percent of all the deaths now are among the unvaccinated and my guess is that an overwhelming number of the cases that we're seeing are entirely among the unvaccinated because we're really not hearing about a lot of breakthrough cases except anecdotally in other countries, not even in our country. Like we've heard about some in Israel and some in in Britain, but not here. So um, as our resident science skeptic analyst uh, you know, hard data guy. Uh, where where are you on all of this? Yeah, my my high school algebra teacher would be really amused to hear you describe me as your our your, your data guy. But well, you're better you're better than we are. Let me put it that way. Well, you remember one of the first columns I wrote uh, for commentary was about how journalists as a whole are bad at math and and science, and I think we all need a little humility um, when when we look at numbers, but. The Delta variant is serious. You know, I think we all felt that there was a lot of hype around one variant after another, and there's a, a big constituency out there that wants to always see imminent doom around the corner. And that there was a lot of almost, yeah, I think in the press, almost a yearning for bad news, even as things were going very well with COVID. But the Delta variant is a big challenge. There was a study out of China a few days ago that showed that people with the Delta variant had roughly a thousand times more virus in their systems than than uh, the viral load on uh, patients or, or, or carriers in the early phases of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's really worrisome. It seems to set in more quickly, about two days faster than the early versions of COVID which implies that it's more contagious quicker. And we know that a lot of the cases from COVID are being transmitted when people are, 
are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So anything that means a higher viral load hitting people faster is is worrisome. And that's probably what accounts for a uh, uh, it's increased transmissibility anywhere from in the 40s to 90%, according to um, a, a British study. So, so it is serious. And, and we're seeing the impact of its increased transmissibility. But we have a solution to this. And, and what's so maddening about what's going on right now in the U.S. is that we shouldn't have to worry about the Delta variant. I mean, the vaccines work. They work against, they work well against it. It really helps to have your both doses because uh, it's uh, only having one dose, it does not seem to be uh, as effective against the Delta variant as it was against previous variants. A single dose seemed to be pretty darn effective, but not with the Delta variant. So the virus is, in a sense, is getting smarter. And this is something we would expect to happen, getting more transmissible. And we're going to see what's sad here is we're going to see this uh, Delta variant burn through these uh, communities with low vaccination rates. And the kind of herd immunity we would have expected, you know, if you're a lot of people were really hopeful that with between people getting vaccinated and a lot of people having already had COVID-19, we would see a kind of early rough herd immunity setting in. But the Delta variant challenges that. It means that, you know, even if if two out of the three people around you are uh, are have some kind of immunity, whether from a vaccine or from a previous infection, that may not be enough to mean that you're relatively safe. And it's also because unvaccinated people are going to tend to cluster in families, in social groups, in communities. So they're going to be giving themselves a situation that's really prone to easy transmission of, of this this virus. So, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. And, and it, that's what makes it so frustrating that there's this weird backlash against vaccines in so many parts of our country. But even, I mean, we shouldn't overstate the extent to which <clears throat> vaccine, vaccinations have been uh, embraced by the vast majority of this population, even in places that have clusters of unvaccinated people. Most of the really vulnerable population, the people who made up the, the majority of the, of the death rate in 2020 and early 2021, have been vaccinated, the That's elderly right. and infirm. Even in states where uh, the vaccination rate is a little bit lower, like Missouri, say, the, the vaccination rates for people over um, over 65 are pretty good. I think, you know, almost everywhere, the vaccination rates for people over 65 are about 75% or better. I think Arkansas might be an outlier on the, on the low end in, you know, in the, in the sixties or something like that. So um, yeah, that's, that's an important consideration. I think where we're seeing more of the vaccine hesitancy is in the younger groups, people who might feel that, you know, it's not as important to them. You, you often on, on some of the, the right wing uh, blogs and Twitter and stuff that I, I follow, you'll hear people making the argument that, well, I'm I'm young and healthy. I'm not that worried about it. Uh, and I think that's a that's a bad argument because it's really not about you. It's about your family and your community. But but that's a common argument. So that might be where we're seeing some of the, the variation. Can I get into So I think that uh, on the right, there is a cultural bias toward bravery. Let me just put it: it's a, it's a weird way of putting this that that uh, that conservatives and people of a more um, conservative disposition uh, tend to uh, believe more in, let's say, 
bravery, physical bravery, uh, manliness, the bravery of manliness and all of that, then, then liberals and people on the left who believe in sort of a certain type of bravery, but not necessarily physical bravery, and they're more, much more concerned with empathy than bravery, and that uh, part of the idea is here, I don't need this vaccine, and that taking the vaccine is somehow a a concession to being soft and 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 afraid and scared, and I'm not scared, and so I'm not going to have the vaccine, except... You know the the net result is that you have this vaccine resistance or vaccine hesitancy, and it is indistinguishable from being a scaredy cat about going in and getting your shot. Like I, you know, that that there's a there, there's a kind of cultural cover which is like, I'm not a sissy. I don't need this stupid vaccine. It's like, well, if you're not a sissy, go and get the goddamn vaccine. Like. Go inconvenience yourself for five minutes. Maybe your arm will hurt a little bit. Shut up. Like, and then the second the second phase of this is, well, I don't really know. How do we know? Like, we had it's an emergency. It hasn't really been fully studied. Oh, so you're chicken. So you're just saying you're too scared to do what uh, you know what two hundred million people in the United States have done already. You you big chicken. I mean, that's uh, that's where I don't. Because there, as as is, has been the case from the 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 schizophrenic response on the right from the very early days of the virus, there is a kind of affect which is you are trying to turn us all into scaredy cat people who won't go outside and won't do anything, and we're in lockdown and we're we're submitting to the government, and at the same time. Like, where is the manliness that says, go get your shot, you, you know, you, you, you lazy bum, or you, like, indolent wretch, or you, you know, self-aggrandizing fool? And, you know, it just gets worse and worse, because I'm not scared of getting the Delta variant. What I am scared of is that these people are going to cause a gigantic surge in the virus that is going to lead to unnece- the genuinely unnecessary semi-lockdowns that might follow this and that my kid is going to have to mask in school again in September and that, you know, uh, their Broadway won't reopen and all kinds of things. Yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. And the response on some sectors of the right has been kind of incoherent. You're right. On the one hand, you would think that if there's this virtue of a certain manliness and bravery, wouldn't that also extend to a, a a willingness to make a small sacrifice for your family and your community and and do this thing that maybe you don't totally want to do, but you'll you'll do it because you want to keep people around you safe? That would seem to me a traditional conservative value, not this kind of selfish, well, I don't think I would get a bad case, so I'm not afraid of it. I'm not going to bother to get a vaccine. That strikes me as the in a way that the the less conservative <laughs> uh, uh, approach uh, but, but that's also, not the totality of the argument no uh, it, it once you scratch the surface then it devolves into well we don't know anything about these rna you know vaccines and what they do to you and what the long-term consequences are so the masculine the masculinity of it the performative masculinity of it melts away after just a you know a two or three socratic questions 
I think what we're also seeing here is something that we've seen throughout the Trump years is the way the right, the populist right, has absorbed so many bad ideas from the left. Yeah, you know, I, re- I remember when Trump was running and he was asked, remember that he was asked that question about, well, isn't, you know, isn't Putin a killer? Hasn't Russian done a lot, a lot of bad things? And his response wasn't, was, well, you don't think we've done bad things? You don't think we've had people killed? It's like, wow, you know, has Trump been reading Howard Zinn? This is like yeah. a Howard Zinn ver- view of American history that we're no better than anybody else. And Trump, of course, with his love of, of sort of crude power, he, you know, he doesn't think that's such a bad thing, but it, it's a left-wing view of, of American history. And we saw that kind of thing happening a lot, you know, sort of the right accepting certain left-wing arguments and all this anti-vax stuff. You know, it used to be people heard bad things about vaccines from their yoga instructor, you know, uh, <laughs> in, in Beverly Hills. And and that was the source of a, a, and and the idea that, well, we can't really trust the authorities. We can't really trust science. It's not really natural. It's so interesting how so many of those arguments have just been picked up and recycled by the right. Well, when well, Trump, <clears throat> when Trump, uh, I don't remember if it was, if it was during his first, uh, during the 2016 campaign or when he first became president, <clears throat> but at some point he, he kind of embraced the vaccine autism link. Uh, argument when he was running, yeah, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's he's sort of been all, all over the map on this because he 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 did that. Then of course he he talked up uh, Operation Warp Speed, and now he's out there saying, "Yeah, you don't have to get your kid vaccinated." But this gets to it, right? It's not a, the the psychological thread that links these two disparate coalitions is a disempowering sense of persecution. It's it's not masculinity at all. It's a complete lack of agency, which is sort of perversely empowering insofar as it gives you the status of victimization. And from there, you can posture and you know preen and, and demand whatever satisfaction you demand from society. But it's it's the persecution complex. That's that's what you know unites the populist right and the progressive left. OK, so let's separate out some of these strands, because like then you have the sort of the oddity of the you know intellectual dark web people like Brett Weinstein. OK, so Brett Weinstein's has this big issue with uh, hesitancy or or um, uh, the medical community's hostility toward the use of ivermectin as a uh, as a palliative or you know as a treatment for uh, living with COVID or dealing with the symptoms of COVID or something like that, and that's a perfectly fine thing. Like there were th- this weird uh, loathing of COVID treatments that was seem to be a kind of feature of standard issue liberal and conventional opinion in 2020 was one of the oddest aspects of the pandemic. The notion that hydroxychloroquine, um, which was a perfectly reasonable, you know, why not try it if you're really sick thing, since it's something that is used in malaria prophylactically. And there was this, don't you dare, don't you dare, don't don't you, anyone who talks about this, Trump is insane. He's talking about hydroxychloroquine. That was sort of nuts. And there's the same thing with ivermectin. But then to say that that's bad and then to say, well, I don't know about the vaccine either. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's an emergency and we don't know what the long-term consequences are. And you get like that guy, Alex Berenson, who ends up at CPAC this weekend saying, guess what? They didn't hit their vaccine goals. And the audience cheers. He got like a a wild ovation at the notion 
that we didn't reach 70% as Biden wanted by July 4th. So what what I, I bring this up in a weird way to say that there are rational ways to look at how the medical community and liberal conventional opinion dealt with COVID from the beginning. And this has been like been a long-term subject to this podcast. Jim's written about it for the magazine. We have talked about this on and on and on and on. And we'll talk a little about Anthony Fauci in a bit and 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 his misbehaviors and his most recent misbehavior. But um to to then say I don't believe anything. I don't believe that the COVID death numbers are what they are. I don't believe the vaccine works. I think I hear six thousand people have died from taking the vaccine, which is preposterous. I mean, what we know is that six thousand people among those who have been vaccinated have died uh, after being vaccinated from all causes not from the vaccine, um, you know, or from, you know, from in, in the course of the vaccination process or something like that. If 6,000 people, as I said last week, if 6,000 people had died from the vaccine, the vaccine would have been suspended. Seven people, now we have like 22 people got some form of Guillain-Barre possibly from taking uh, the Johnson Johnson vaccine and they're on the verge of pulling the Johnson & Johnson vaccine practically after seven people got that weird heart condition back in April and they created the first you could argue you could argue that that cre- that was the moment when liberal medicine and CDC and all those people using their their the way that they panic about things introduced vaccine hesitancy into the vaccination process and slowed the vaccination rate down to the point that it has never recovered um but we on the right, we have some weird hunger to disbelieve everything that everybody says about everything. And not every, you know, and and including like the fact that people have not reckoned with the fact that the creation of vaccines pretty much in the 20th century is the single greatest thing that ever happened on the, in the history of the planet Earth. And you know, diseases that killed 100, 200, 300 million people over the course of world history have been eradicated, smallpox especially, and we take that all for granted and now look at every single introduction of everything as some kind of potential plot. And um, and this is very frightening to me because I thought that, you know, we saw sweet reason on the right and clearly we don't. In a way, it's another area where the right is kind of imitating the left. The left has, for a long time, has had this tendency to take all the benefits of capitalism, science, and modern society, and just take them as a given that we'd have all these things, you know, even if we overthrew the the greedy capitalists and and uh, and let everything, you know, be organized on some sort of Marxist principle. This, uh, it's a kind of an arrogance that, that, that life would be the same, except just better and more equal. And I think the one, some of this on the right is, is a little bit similar, similar, like there are people are assuming that we would, we would all be healthy and we'd all be um, you know, living our lives without these experts, the, you know, t- telling us things and 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 doing things that we don't really trust. We don't we don't need to to listen to them because they're you know 
some of them have said things that we don't like. And I, this, 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 this doubting of, of expertise and modernity is, it's very tempting. It's very, you know, it's almost like a Rousseauian strain in our culture. Like if we only have a more natural past, everything was great in the past when we all live closer to nature. And it's, it's this romantic impulse that it, the, the, the right is not immune to. And, and we're seeing it in a lot of the skepticism of the science around COVID. Okay, and well, so yet, we, yeah. and yeah. yet yes. we should put in a good word for the adventurism, the risk-prone entrepreneurial spirit that has typified the American experience for so long, it, at this moment in history, more pronounced on the right, though not at home necessarily on the right, and a, a healthy skepticism of the sorts of people who are risk-averse to the point of pathology, near mania, um, is a real phenomenon, is a real thing that deserves to be pushed back upon. I think this might get a, be a good transition into uh, the Fauci conversation because I stumbled across this piece in the Washington Post yesterday. And I'll quote uh, CNN uh, national security reporter, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, Nicole Gauillet. It's very French. Um, but she, promoting this piece, writes the following, quote, even if you're vaccinated, please consider wearing a mask in public to protect the vulnerable among us, transplant recipients, cancer patients, and others. Goes on to quote the Washington Post piece that justifies this claim by noting that in an indeterminate, but so far basically indefensible error, infinitesimal number of uh, infections that can go on for months and months and months and can pass on to the immunocompromised among us, which John alluded to later, now somehow includes the entire population of the of the the United States, uh, the actual the confidence interval here is is hilarious. The the subhead on this piece about why you should wear your mask forever and everybody should ma mask forever in perpetuity for the benefit of cancer patients. Lord knows what they did in the status quo ante. Quote: Early research shows that 15 to 80 percent of people with certain medical conditions, such as specific blood cancers or organ transplants, are generating fewer antibodies after receiving coronavirus vaccines. 15 to 80 percent is the confidence interval here that we're basing <laughs> this policy recommendation on. That's insane. That is a crazy thing to write, much less publish in a national newspaper in the nation's capital. But this is the dialogue we're having. So, yeah, if the right wants to push back on that, God bless them. Somebody should. OK, so Andrea Mitchell had Anthony Fauci on yesterday on her show on MSNBC. And she said, what do we do about the children? Right. What do we do about the children as young as two? I mean, people are saying children as young as two need to wear masks. Uh, is that right? And Fauci said, I think we should follow the CDC guidelines, which say that people who cannot be vaccinated, that includes everyone under the age of 12, and people over the age of two should be masked. No doubt about that. So that means two and a half year olds should be masked. Now, as it happens, where I live and where I've lived, you know, Two and a half year olds were masking, or their parents were masking them, or whatever, when they were at daycare or something like that. And uh, they're very adaptable, as it turns out. Uh, uh, there was, there's been a lot of talk about how they, they you know, this is, this is monstrous, and they can't, they can't. You, how, how are you going to keep the mask on? And you know, I mean, they can't kind of keep them out. They forget it's there, and and all of that. That has nothing to do with. Fauci going on television and saying three-year-olds should wear masks in perpetuity until the vaccination rate hits whatever number he wants because they don't get the virus. The, the, the risk to them is infinitesimally small 
and the theory that they can get it and pass it but not get it themselves has is not is a theory that remains without any substantive proof and so you are creating a condition under which prophylactically without any actual reason to believe that this is a thing to do you are saying that small children should live their lives until we reach some mythical moment at which there is no more risk um not looking at each other's faces and that's the weird part about all this which is that we can quantify how many people get covid we can quantify how many people die from covid we can quantify who gets what the number by the way out of 630,000 cases in the united states of covid deaths of people under the age of 18 stands at 336 at 336 and it's very hard by the way to break out those numbers by age but my guess is that the number of kids under the age of five who have died from covid may be countable on two hands given if it's 336 that is that is likelier than otherwise and what we do know and this is the other stat i wanted to bring up is there is a report today that uh that there were 93,000 overdoses uh, uh, over the past year, an increase of nearly 30%. But we were told earlier in the year that uh, the suicide rate in the United States had actually declined in 2020, a stat used by people who are believers in perpetual lockdown to say, no, no, there was this claim that there, was gonna, there were going to be mental health effects from the lockdown but there really aren't by the way which uh, anyone who has teenagers can tell you is a preposterous lie there has been an academic an epidemic of of of, of mental uh mental distress among teenagers all across the united states this is not this is both anecdotal and hard and every child psychologist in the country will tell you that they don't have appointments and that there are no there's no room that emergency rooms are filling up with kids coming in with suicidal ideation and mental hospitals and all of that don't have space to help them and so um those are also real those are also numbers <clears throat> and fauci is standing there saying three-year-olds should mask um without any reference to the idea that maybe doing stuff like this is causing adolescents to want to kill themselves so where do we go with this? This is the leading I mean, public health official he, in the United States. He also said that <clears throat> parents, whether you're vaccinated or not, should follow these guidelines if your, if your child is unable to get vaccinated. So every parent with a, a child under the age of 12 should also be masking. Um, and, and he also uh, observed, he said you should observe CDC guidance, which I don't think reflects his recommendations insofar as I'm aware of them. Um, I just want to say, what if the the this the question of not wanting to take the vaccine and and the question of wanting to mask up forever on the other side. Um, what if the, the various responses here have nothing to do with courage versus cowardice? Um, it seems to me that both the vaccine skeptics, they're not even skeptics, the, the sort of militantly anti-vaxxers and the and the folks who want to mask up forever not including fauci himself i think that's a he's after something different but the, among the population what if these were just expressions both expressions of different expressions of the same thing which is a kind of nihilism um where in fact neither believe 
in anything at this point, right? Uh, the, the populists on the right don't believe in anything the public health experts are telling us about the vaccine. They don't, they don't trust that system at all. The left is now at this point, the, the, at least the ones that want to mask up forever, they don't believe we're ever getting out of this. They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't believe in a, in a, they say believe in the science yet, but the reason that they actually, you know, uh, endorse policies that don't go against the science, that, that, that in fact go against the science is because they don't believe the science. Um, I think it is actually a kind of nihilism, which I think also actually feeds into the, the question of, um, of the rise in overdoses as well. Jim, um, both Bill de Blasio in New York and the California Department of Public Health have announced that in contravention of CDC recommendations, they're going to compel all students to mask beginning in September, vaccinated or unvaccinated in, the, in, in, their, in their public school systems. How is that, just to go with Abe's line, so I thought they were supposed to believe in the science and that it was easy, it was evil to question it was evil to question the CDC. Uh, and they're like, no, 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 the CDC says that anyone who is vaccinated doesn't have to mask. But we're not going with that. Nah, got to mask anyway. What do you what's that about? Does that well, jibe with Abe's theory or something else going on there? Well, in, in Christine's absence, I will do my best to channel her uh, <laughs> her feelings about the the incredible and pernicious impact of the teachers unions throughout this entire uh, episode uh, that we we've seen. And, and there's a um, there's on the part of the unions, a kind of. Uh, safetyism, to use that word that uh, John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, uh, I don't know if they coined it, but they wrote about it in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. The safetyism that you can never be too careful, that that even the tiniest risk is is impermissible. So even though, you know, any teacher in her right mind is going to be vaccinated going back into school, uh, the schools, the, the, I think this, the schools are within their rights to insist on that. I know that's a big debate. But this notion that the schools are going to be a dangerous place without without masking, I, I think, is is just it's silly and wrong. And it's frustrating that this here's a very visible area where the, the leaders can say, well, at least we're doing something. You know, we're taking action. We're being uh, we're being assertive. And I think some of it is a kind of theater. I think there is something else going on with the unions, which is that this is some weird way to circumvent them if you are part of their team. So you in other words if you if you if you're de Blasio and you want the schools opened but you also don't want the teachers unions to be mad at you or you whatever you um, you preempt them by saying all students will be masked. Now say you want the school. Now effectively implicitly saying now keep saying you want the schools closed. I gave you, the, I've just given you, I've ceded to you the main excuse that you have for why schools can't reopen and why you should continue to be able to teach at home. I've ceded it. We're not going to even talk about it. Kids are masked. Come at, see if you can come up with something else. So in, in some sense, there may be a kind of weird Machiavellian thing where these are people who can't confront the unions for all kinds of reasons or don't want to, but they're also aware that what they're up to is bad news. And so they're going to come up with some thing 
that makes it impossible for Randy Weingarten to say, no, 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 they, teachers, we still have to have the Zoom option. They, they still have to be able to teach at home and have the kids in the classroom. Seems like a failure of imagination. If they, well, if they assume they can box in Randy Weingarten, she'll say whatever she needs to say when she needs to I say know. I know, but that's that's one that's one way of of looking at it. Another way of looking at things is to try to consider uh, what we're going to talk about in our next segment, which is what on earth is going to go on uh, in the Senate with this three trillion, three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill, and what the macroeconomic and investing consequences are going to be of the Senate and the House taking up this gigantic piece of legislation. And if you want to know what to think, what to know, how to see how this is all unfolding, you got to go to our friends at the Bonson Group, go to DividendCafe.com to sign up for David Bonson's two newsletters, the DCToday.com and DividendCafe.com, one daily, one weekly, that go into all of the relevant macroeconomic hard data on the economy and on the markets and how things are working. Jerome Powell, Jay Powell, the head of the Fed, is testifying in front of Congress today and tomorrow. David will be on that. David has interesting charts he's going to release later today, uh, digging into some of these inflation numbers, particularly one uh, he sent me in advance on the rental car market, which is the single leading indicator in this gigantic inflation surge of the last month uh, that uh, rental cars or used cars also went up like 85%. And that is actually what drove this almost 1% increase in inflation in the course of a month. He has a very interesting chart showing that that fever may have broken already and that that's a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. Uh, you just got to go and and, and take the wisdom there from David and the Bonson Group, $3 billion under management by coastal management firm with a Dividend Cafe and the DCToday.com. DividendCafe.com to sign up. The Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management business. So let us talk now about the, the funny politics of the last 18 hours. Around about 6 o'clock, Yesterday evening comes an announcement that Democrats in the Senate have agreed to a three and a half trillion dollar over ten year uh, budget bill uh, that will uh, that will that is a much more modest a modest bill modest three and a half trillion dollars in new spending over ten years because it's not the six trillion dollars in new spending that Bernie Sanders wanted so see it's very moderate because it's not six trillion it's only three and a half trillion. Um, and that they've agreed on this, and there's a framework, and it's going to be paid for. It has to be paid for in order to only pass by by 51 votes uh, as a budget reconciliation bill. It has to both be – it's a budgetary bill with budgetary consequences, but has to be paid for. They figure out a way to pay for it. We'll see what happens. It's a framework, blah, 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 blah. And then this morning, guess what happens? Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, the two – you know, the two conservative votes in uh, relatively, whatever you want to call them, the two non-leftist voters among Democrats in the Senate issued statements saying, ah, you were very interested to see what's happening. And we certainly are very proud of our colleagues for doing such a thoughtful job. It's really, we're really going to be interested to see where this package ends up. 
In other words, the press was sold a bill of goods last night that Democrats in the Senate had agreed, all 50 of them, to this bill. Because, of course, the only way the bill passes, I want to remind everybody, it's a 50-50 Senate. Every single Democrat has to vote for this bill just to get to even so that Kamala Harris can break the tie, be the 51st vote out of a 50-50 vote, and pass the bill. So one person in the Democratic, you know, in the in the Democratic caucus says no, and it's dead. So I don't know what the purpose was of making this announcement. Biden's going to go to the Hill, push it, all of this, uh, when uh, they just got humiliated this morning by Mansion and Cinema saying, effectively saying, we didn't agree to this. I don't know what the hell you people are talking about. And I'm going to f- finish my rant here. trillion is going to be paid for. That's a tax increase. That is, there's enormous tax increases. Not on anybody, not on incomes less than 400,000, John. Yeah. It's all paid for. Yeah. And not, and not small businesses either. Yeah. That's a fantasy. You can't get to that number without taxing people whose incomes are lower than $400,000 a year. You can't get. $300 $300 billion in new spending fully paid for without a more general tax increase. Um, in the end, somebody's got to score it. The CBO has to score it. And the CBO, you can play all kinds of games, but but that's a lot of money and it's got to come from somewhere in order to be a budget reconciliation bill. And you can pull every fast one you want. I just don't understand what happened here? Did they did they think that they were going to bluff Mansion and Cinema into saying that they supported the bill? Isn't that the most likely explanation, though, that they were just trying to to present them with a set of circumstances that this was fait accompli, and if you are to if you come out against this, you know, you're just going to upend the the narrative that is favorable to Democrats, and you wouldn't want to do like maybe that was I, I don't I can't really work my head around the strategy either, but that's the only thing that makes sense. I mean, look. If they came up with a $2 trillion bill that could be paid for in this way, in, in you know, with tax increases only on people over 400000 and various other things, if they could do that, uh, which maybe they could, would that be insufficient? I mean, I understand Bernie Sanders wants $6 trillion and that it's terrible if it's not $6 trillion. But if they could get $2 trillion as opposed to zero. Wouldn't they want the $2 trillion? That's where I start thinking that they have all gone insane. Because there clearly is a number they can get to with the kind of tax increases that polls say are relatively popular, that don't hit at the middle class or even the very upper middle class, that they could get to. But they are boxing themselves into a corner that any such thing that they can get to aside from the infrastructure bill that they that that they're trying to get through with through normal processes is a wimp out and a and a and a surrender to the evil right or something like that so now if they don't get to three and a half trillion which i'm guessing they can't now what do they do because everything else is going to look like they failed that's why i don't understand what's happening here Abe, help me out. You're you. Well, you didn't, know, you, but didn't uh, I? I think I saw like someone on CNN asked uh, Joe Manchin this morning if he would 
where if he would be willing to discuss uh, $3 trillion. And he said, uh, I'd discuss anything, but uh, where's the money going to come from? And this was the, 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 the news program I was watching was, was sort of taking this as like, a, ah, look, this is good. He'll discuss, he'll, he said he'll discuss it. <laughs> I mean, forget Joe Manchin and cinema. Let's just, cause we, you know, we've had this conversation about the filibuster before. It's like, they're out there being the, you know, the tar baby, right? They're, they're going to take all the criticism and it's going to stick to them and it's fine. <laughs> Maggie Hassan comes from a weird state. New Hampshire, which is very anti-government and very, you know, weird and has weird histories of cross-current policies. And she won her Senate seat by a thousand votes. And John Sununu is sitting there as a very popular governor who uh, who is being wooed to run for that seat in 2022. And if he runs for the seat in 2022, uh, it, he will either likely win or it will be another like 1,500 vote margin that Hassan wins by. And she's going to be called upon to vote for a $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill? I mean, why not hand John Sununu a baseball bat to smash her head in with for a year and a half? I mean... Why wouldn't he run for Senate under those conditions unless, very wisely, he didn't want to be a senator because it sucks and it's fun to be a governor? I could imagine that. But under these conditions, John Sununu wouldn't even have to be the one to run for office. Anybody could run for office in New Hampshire and beat her over the head with a baseball bat for having voted for a bill that is going to raise taxes on people in New Hampshire the way this bill will end up raising. So she may have to vote against it. In order to preserve the very even the possibility, the slim, narrow possibility that Democrats can hold hold on to the Senate in twenty twenty two, what are they thinking? Well, I, I I mean that's a narrow look at the landscape. Unfortunately, the map favors Democrats in the Senate in twenty two. They're they're just Republicans are just defending a lot more territory. So I mean, and also okay. it seems to, it seems enough. unlikely that Maggie Hassan um, will want to be the deciding vote. Now, if she has cover in the form of Mansion and Cinema, that's something else. Right. But to be the you know the fiftieth vote to you know pull what John McCain did, for example, in the, the skinny repeal bill, or uh, you know Cinema uh, uh, did with her little curtsy and the thumbs down. I mean, that's the sort of thing that'll kill her her career just as much as voting for it. Right. So this is a very, anyway, it's, you know, you're putting your, so it's a Hobson's choice and you're putting people in an impossible position, right? Which is exactly what happened with the tax of the Clinton tax increase in 1993. Uh, Marjorie Margolis, who ended up as Clinton's uh, uh, machetanister, uh, that she ended up as the, as the, as the uh, mother-in-law, the fellow mother-in-law of Chelsea Clinton, but um, she voted for the Clinton tax increase in 1993, knowing full well that that meant that she was going to lose the election in 1994. Um, that happened. That is a very rare thing to happen with a politician, that you are able to put s- sufficient pressure on them to to basically end their own careers um, for the noble principle of, a bill, of of providing a tax increase to Bill Clinton. So, you know, that's a wonderful, she got grandchildren out of it. So, you know, that's what Zygesund to her, that was great. But, you know, generally speaking, people aren't going to do something like that. And if, if I can, 
let's just go talk a little bit back about the voting rights stuff because this is all happening at the same time that enormous pressure is being put on by liberals and Biden and other people on the Senate. Maybe, despite the fact that Biden says he's against lifting the filibuster, maybe to kill the filibuster in some fashion to pass this voting rights bill that the tech, you know, that that supposedly will help guard against the evil Texas legislature's game uh, of, uh, you know, of, of ending voting rights and destroying our democracy by making sure that people vote the way that they've always voted um, and not through, you know, drive-in windows and, and stuff like that. Uh, um, like, a lot of pressure is being put on Senate Democrats to do things that is all based on this fantasy that they have way more votes than they have. Um, like, there's an illogic here that is very hard for me to square. Okay, it's so with, for any of us to square. Okay, you know, well, yeah, really obviously, yeah, comprehend it. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm going to say this again: when Lyndon Johnson passed all of the historic legislation of 1965 he had there were democrats had 68 senates senate seats you know when uh and and like a 120 seat margin in the house same was true of fdr and the fdr's first like these colossal majorities that led to you know uh, America changing legislation because, in fact, there were mandates for it, not just at the presidential level with these wild landslide elections, but also in the House and in the Senate. And Biden has a, but Democrats have a four seat margin in the House and do not have the Senate. Their behavior is insane. And if they didn't have this uh, slavish, progressive, increasingly progressive press, that um, that uh, downplays their political risk and 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 pushes the progressive agenda on them, um, they would be in a lot better position to manage the actual political facts that they face. Well, well let's talk about that press because I think that's a really big difference between those eras and, and today. The Biden White House can say the most ridiculous things and get almost no pushback. This this statement that Biden made about this being a 20th, 21st century Jim Crow assault on democracy, the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. I mean, these and about what about for the most part, returning voting rules to what they were before the pandemic, you know, and as you say, not, you know, okay, no, maybe you can't have 24 hour voting and drive through voting in Texas. There's a little bit of overreach here and there, maybe around some of these bills, but, but really the hysteria around what to most voters, if they were actually informed about what these bills say, they'd be like, yeah, well, isn't that the way it already works? You know, I remember when one of my sons, went to vote for the first time and he's like, well, what do I need? Do I? And it's like, nothing, just go in. You go, wait, I don't need like an ID, a birth certificate. No, you just show up. <laughs> you know. And he was like, what? <laughs> he couldn't believe it. Well, you don't it. even have to show up. You don't even have to show up. That's the joke. You could drive by a Dropbox and put a ballot in the Dropbox. No one knows if it's you. No one knows whose ballot it is. No one knows if it's not the fit, you know, you stole, you're in an apartment complex and you stole everybody's mail and filled out the ballots. I mean, it's like, 
it's just illogic. You know, the illogic of it is, is, is amazing. And I get back to the fact that, uh, you know, Barack Obama is also using that Jim Crow language. How did he get 70 million votes? That's if the this thing, is a though, Jim Crow country. You got to dwell on that for a minute because political analysts at NBC News and people like Amy Walter are, are discussing Joe Biden's speech yesterday, which was incredibly irresponsible, ridiculously over the top, um, <clears throat> really uh, dismissing and downplaying the legacy of Jim Crow by uh, attacking these uh, voting rights laws. Um, which if you do read them, I mean, there are provisions that you can take issue with and should take issue with, frankly. In Texas, the, the notion that you can't vote until 1 p.m. on Sunday feels like an attack on souls to the polls and it's just stupid and should go. Same, there's provisions in the Georgia law that are similar, but for the most part, they're dedicated to codifying into law the emergency provisions that expanded access to the ballot during the pandemic while paring back only some of the most ridiculous over-the-top stuff, like in Houston, where you have 24-hour drive-through voting, that's the sort of thing that you can pare back without affecting anyone, disenfranchising anyone, affecting civil rights. So the democratic indictment here is that returning to the status quo ante is racist, which would render the status quo ante racist, which would render the validity of every election before 2020 racist. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's again, a base mobilization strategy, but a base mobilization strategy in the summer of 2021, which makes you think that all the table pounding is just an indication of how much trouble they think they're in. I just, I just believe that people believe this. I mean, I know very elite, very serious people who believe this and Applebaum believes in Apple as a friend of mine. I mean, people believe that the Republican Party is attempting to use, you know, local legislation to destroy our democracy by making it impossible for people to vote. And then when you ask politicians who actually have to vote on these things or like push them like like Kamala Harris, uh, what the evidence is for this, Kamala Harris says this thing that Eliana Johnson made fun of on yesterday's podcast, which is like, well, rural people don't have access to photocopy machines. Like, when was the last time anybody used a photocopy machine anyway? As far as I know, there's like almost 100% coverage in this country with cell phones, all of which have cameras. So we don't need photocopy machines. Is this actually the argument that Kamala Harris is making? Kamala Harris gave an interview to NPR yesterday and said, because Republicans are going to try to attempt, attempt to destroy our democracy, what's really important is uh, education. And we need education, and that means what we need to do is get out the vote using education. Well, do that anyway. Like, what are you talking about? Go ahead. So do voter mobilization. Go ahead. Like, go tell people they have to go vote. Uh, you know, funnily enough, when people want to vote, they vote. Like, 150 million people voted in 2020. Like, literally like 153 or 154 million people voted it was almost 20 million more people than voted in 2016 this is no joke people can vote when they want to vote um and 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 they'll do it again and the easiest the easiest uh way you know that somebody might vote is if they voted before so our entire baseline because of 2020 suggests a level of voter turnout that would have seemed um uh, science fictional back in 2008 when Barack Obama got 70 million votes. It was like, oh my God, he got 70 million votes. This is unbelievable. Joe Biden got 82 million votes. 
12 years later like this is this is no joke like and 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 and, and trump got 74 million like this, these are real numbers i think jen Psaki said this yesterday where she said you know how let slip that democrats would counteract what they believe to be efforts to to limit democratic participation in elections by overcoming them through turnout which kind of gives away the game right that shouldn't be possible in the right. scenario you're outlining yeah, I mean it, it's also part of that whole thing, which is like, okay, well, if they fix the game, you need to win. You need to play better. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess if you really believe that the game is is being fixed, if you can actually win despite the game being fixed, like in the longest yard or something like that, then, 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 then go right ahead. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm being. I just find that the truth is that I know many people who believe of a certainty that unless something is being done, our democracy is finished. And I don't even know what that means. Well, <clears throat> I think, I mean, I think it's that it's the persistence of that conversation, frankly, that is like the most dangerous sign. I'm, I'm sort of on the, you know, the Chris Steyerwald point here. It's that if basically, you know, uh, the left and the right, these many months after the last election, they're sort of, the, they're both, they're, in some sense, their main talking points are about, the illegitimacy of, of voting in this country, two different arguments about the, the illegitimacy of voting in this country. That's a very bad thing. That's a that's a also, very scary yeah. thing. Yeah, it's just the wish is father to the thought. Right. I mean, Jim, you I'm and sorry, I. Sorry, yeah. just to, to emphasize, I don't want to yeah. interrupt, but to emphasize this point, uh, Fitch Credit Ratings, a leading credit rating provider, I read this through a press release this morning, warned and it's making all the news. Warned that the America's credit rating runs the risk of being downgraded. And the lead to justify this was the events of January 6th and voting laws in, in the States that it, you know, malgovern maladministration, bad governance could lead to the reduction of America's credit credit rating. You go down way, 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 way farther in the press release and you start to talk about inflation and you start to talk about <laughs> ridiculous ridiculous yeah. amounts of spending and yeah. too much money chasing too few goods and you know the quality of life declining that sort of thing maybe a little yeah. bit but it led with this voting but, the voting but, issue but this is why Noah I think that the 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 our 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 constant struggle continues because you believe that our uh, antagonists or our opponents or ideological others uh uh see reason the way we see reason and they don't they believe this they believe that something unprecedented and horrible and monstrous is going on that was going to destroy the country as we know it by the beginning of 2025 and that we are somehow in weimar germany in 1928 and that they you know timothy snyder basically wrote this in the new york times magazine uh that we were basically around 1928 1920 29 in weimar um you know he's a, a professor of history at yale who should know better but you know he got a number one bestseller out of his nonsense and so he's going to get another one out of this nonsense uh but you know this is a very serious idea and abe is absolutely right that if you have the trumpian saying they're stealing it through the you know through an argentine colombian communist uh, you know, method that my the my pillow guy have has has somehow discerned through looking through his magic spiritual glass, and then you have Democrats saying, "Well, there's no way that Trump that you know there's no way that 
that Republicans, um, everything Republicans are doing is designed to make sure that we never win an election again. And, and no is, one, and this is where the energy to, is yeah. on both sides. Yeah. Well, that's a very good point, right? Because all Trump cares about now is making this argument right. about about the about twenty twenty, and all the Democrats that yeah, this this Texas legislators flying to Washington for a month in order to stand there and say, please pass this bill. The only way they can pass the bill is to break the filibuster. If somehow this cause becomes the number one cause in the country over the next three weeks, then by, there, will, there will be this huge pressure to break the filibuster to pass this bill, which of course will also make it easier for them to pass various other things, including some giant infrastructure bill, if they really ever take this measure. Then it's broken. Then Republicans come in and pass their own bills, and then that really is where, despite this idea that you know filibuster is only a you know simple majoritarian response and it's a undemocratic and all of this, where the where the republic really could collapse because we just trade. We just every four years, we pass six trillion dollars, and then we sat. Then we substitute the six trillion. We pass this, and then we did that. We we pack the court, and then we pack the court again, and then we pack the court again, and then there are two hundred and seventy five members of the Supreme Court. You know. And all of that. The, and this is enough to give you a pain in your back. And that's why you got to get the X chair. Remember the X chair? I don't know how you've forgotten it. Uh, with its patented dynamic variable lumbar support, with that lumbar support to your lower back, most comfortable, the luxury supercar of office chairs. I got one and I love it. And now they got this Elamax featuring cooling heat and massage therapy. Like imagine this. It's hot. You can get cool from the Elamax. If it's cool, you can get hot. And four settings for massage. You can regulate your body temperature and get uh, uh, treatment for your sore back while sitting at your desk. Helps increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. And those four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy for your sore back. You won't believe the extra chair difference until you feel the extra difference for yourself. Trade in that old uncomfortable office chair. Trade up to an X chair. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's a letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR to save $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free X-Wheel Bladecasters, xchaircommentary.com. Guys, while we were doing this podcast, I'm, I'm calling an audible on the final topic because... Barack Ravid, who writes for Axios from Tel Aviv, has um, has released a, a, a brief report on uh, Mohammad Zarif, the uh, outgoing Iranian foreign minister, and a report that he wrote to Parliament about the Biden administration's negotiating strategy uh, to get uh, Iran back into the Iran deal, the JCPOA. And according to Barack Ravid, the Biden administration has agreed to lift almost all U.S. sanctions on Iran. And here's what it says. The document is in Farsi, uh, serves as uh, Zarif's political will. Um, and here's what he says. He says, uh, Biden is prepared to remove not only the sanctions reimposed by Trump, but also most of the sanctions Trump later imposed under his maximum pressure strategy. So he will lift the designation of the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terrorist organization. He will lift sanctions against uh, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei. 
he will more than a thousand Iranian individuals and entities will be removed from the sanctions list. Many secondary sanctions that make it difficult for U.S. companies to do business in Iran would also be withdrawn. Uh, the U.S. has all has not agreed to lift non-nuclear sanctions that predate Trump. Okay. And it does briefly note that some U.S. sanctions would remain in place even after a deal was reached. And all Iran would have to do, according to this, is uh, limit uh, enrichment back to uh, enrichment of um, uranium to 3.67% back from 20%. This is a whole thing I don't even want to go into. Um, but they would put some of their more advanced centrifuges into storage and use older centrifuges but they already have three generations of centrifuges since 2015 so these older ones are still pretty good um and the most advanced centrifuges would remain in iran rather than being shipped out or destroyed so they would sit there to be used again whenever they wanted to okay so that is the report a framework of a possible agreement um i once again I'm going to ask you guys this question, which is, are the Biden, is the Biden administration insane? They actually want to go to the American people and say, we are lifting all sanctions against uh, Iran, Khomeini, the uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, and, 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 uh, and the sanctions against a thousand terrorists and terrorist individuals in exchange for nothing? Help me. I just want to add. This comes. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Were you probably going where I was going? We're both going to make the exact yeah. same point. Yeah. That that prosecutors just charged four Iranian uh, intelligence operatives with an attempt oh, yeah. to kidnap the Iranian American journalist uh, Masi Al Alinejad, I think her name is. You know, she's an outspoken critic of the regime, in, and she lives in New York. Right. Intelligence operation on U.S. soil, right. which isn't the first, you know, such brazen act in our lifetimes. Um, nope. But yeah, are they insane? No, they're just trying to push the can. By the way, not only is it not the first such act in our lifetimes, right around the time of um, Obama's uh, uh, pitch with, with the, to, to make a, a nuclear deal, um, there, was the, there was the plot to kidnap or I think assassinate, assassinate. assassinate. A, a, a Saudi official in Washington, yeah. D.C. Um, okay, so yeah, so now, this is Zarif saying this is what he got, right? That's basically what he's saying he got. And and we know that Robert Malley, uh, a very bad person, is the negotiator. Uh, but presumably, he's not negotiating without the knowledge of, of Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. Um, I mean, again, it's just like, are uh, okay, so you really want to go get back in the Iran deal? Fine. Uh you want to get back to the Iran deal while they get to keep the centrifuges that they built in in uh, in violation of the Iran deal. Uh, you want them to do it in exchange for a promise that they will uh, re retrogress their enriched uranium uh, back to three point six when they've already uh, they've already created more uh, uranium at tw at twenty percent enrichment than they were supposed to and. You, I mean, I guess they don't have any money to be given, but uh, but companies will. It'll be easier for companies to work um, in Iran. And uh, I just want to point out that, just again, politically, whatever you want to talk about here, the Iran deal was not popular in the United States. Sixty-two percent of Americans opposed the Iran deal. Had it been 
had it followed had it had they had it been presented as a treaty which is what it should have been it would have been laughed at there would have been no vote for it in the senate it would have been laughed out of the senate and as it was i think 59 or 60 senators voted against it uh the way it was structured they had to vote they had to cast a negative vote for a negative or a positive i mean i can't even remember it was some weird thing where they had to do something in reverse of what you would think in order for it not to go through and 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 it almost didn't go through anyway i mean it's not that it almost didn't go through it was going to pass but uh but the majority of the senate opposed it in 2015 i don't know what it, what's better now i mean maybe the democratic senate is more left-wing but certainly the you know so help me help me someone help me yeah i mean the biden biden joe biden campaigned on and the administration has since affirmed their desire to seek not a return to the JCPOA per se, but a better deal, you know, a different deal, but one that was more comprehensive and had a you know, longer timeline and was more effective, a, a tacit acknowledgement of how unpopular the Iran deal was politically. But this framework sounds like a worse deal. I mean, at least for whatever you want to say about the JCPOA, at least they were shipping a lot of their uranium out uh, to Russia. doesn't sound like that's the case here. They're just going to de-enrich. I think what they're counting on is the relentlessly domestic focus of uh, our political elite and the media. Now, the storyline won't be, is this a dangerous move in the Middle East or is it dangerous to our long-term security? It's Trump did something, we fixed it. You know, right. and, and you're seeing that in, in a number of areas. I mean, one of the very first things that the administration did when they came in to office was start the process to overturn the the revisions of the Title IX rules on on uh, on how to adjudicate sexual assault allegations on college campuses. You know, those rules were the Obama era dear colleague rules were roundly criticized from across the political spectrum. A lot of Amy Chua, Emily Yaffe, a lot of smart thinkers on, on the left challenged those. Uh, but Trump did it. It must be bad. They're even willing to take some political fallout for for taking these positions. It seemed to 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 you know restore the uh, the status quo ante, and and I think that that's probably the main impetus here. It, and they and they're confident they won't they they won't get that much pushback because the press will frame it as a domestic issue. Fair enough. I just think, and I granted. I'm an old man. I'm, you know, I'm 60 years old, and I remember things that a lot of people don't remember, and all of that. But Americans don't like Iran. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to say that it is still the case that Americans don't like Iran. They don't like the Iranians. At any time, they're reminded of what Iran is, or what goes on in Iran, or what happens in Iran. They don't like what they're hearing. It's not be, some of it for people who are old enough to remember has to do with the hostage taking. Some of it has to do with its support for terrorism. Some of it has to do with its um, role in fomenting uh, the war in Iraq and killing hundreds of Americans, if not thousands of Americans, not, not thousands, but killing a lot of people in Iraq uh, through their proxies during the Iraq war. Some of it has to do with their, their, their desire to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Americans do not like Iran, and it is politically demented to, to look as though you are pushing an agenda that will help Iran achieve its goals, which in the absence of a serious argument that what you are doing is retarding Iran's goals, 
this is. This dovetails, by the way, with a much more live example of that sort of phenomenon, which is ongoing right now in Cuba. Progressives spent the last decade talking themselves into the notion that, that young Americans, young Hispanic Americans didn't care about Cuba anymore, especially young Cubans in Florida. And what have we seen over the course of this week? Young people, teenagers, pouring out into the streets in, in, in defense of, uh, of the Cuban people who are being brutalized by the regime, uh, in, up to and including organizing relief operations that now apparently the Coast Guard is trying to interdict because they want to take 10-hour trips over to, to Cuba to, to you know be mercenaries. I don't even know what's going on there. But there's a, you know, a real live sentiment in a very crucial state for Democrats that against the regime in Cuba of uh, something that they thought was a dead issue, and it is most certainly not. Hey, they shut down a highway, a freeway. I thought you were only allowed to do that when you're protesting cops. <laughs> Well, they that's the new down. line. That's they the new line down. that that uh, DeSantis isn't is a, has this you know, porous and poorly uh, administrative administrative uh, 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 prohibition on that sort of thing as it's happening now for people that he likes and he's not he's not uh, 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 he's not enforcing this law uh, uniformly. Which and there's something to be said about that, frankly. I'm so it's sure. probably a poorly written law. I'm sure, but anyway, I'm just saying, like you know, you you get to shut down a highway, we get to shut down a highway. Congratulations! Maybe you shouldn't shut highways down, and then you won't give people the idea to shut highways down, which they shouldn't do. Nobody should shut down a highway. It's just so incredibly annoying. It's incredibly annoying, and it actually probably works against what you want. You shouldn't do it, and it's bad. And also, get vaccinated. Jim Meggs, thank you so much for joining us as ever. We've gone on very long here um, because we're so long-winded. Or I'm I, I'm long-winded. You guys are much more concise than I am. Uh, Abe, feel better. Thank you. Uh, uh, Noah, you uh, you have a good day. <laughs> I'm not sure whether Christine is going to be back tomorrow or not. She may be back, uh, and, but she won't be here on Friday. So I don't know what's going on. But for, for everybody here... And for the absent Christine, Noah, and Abe, I am John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.